I greet you this morning in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. In this series of messages on holy living, our focus today is on the emotional side of living in Christ and growing in Christ. And our scripture lesson for the morning comes from Paul's great letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. St. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And every time I read that, I'm amazed because when he wrote this, he's in jail. How do you rejoice in jail? I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed, renewed your concern for me. The Philippians had managed to get an offering uh, to Paul in Rome. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What a claim. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and just set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. There was an antique dealer who used to go roaming through the Smoky Mountains from holla to holla and looking for isolated houses. And he would approach the house and, and ask if, if the owner wanted to sell anything old, old furniture, farm implements, glassware, anything as long as it was old. And one day he knocked on the door of a dilapidated shack and the woman who came to the door was wearing a tattered dress and worn out shoes. And he made his offer to her. 
And she glanced at the sunlit forest and the blue sky. And then she said, Mr. is like this. I ain't got nothing I don't want. And I don't want nothing I ain't got. <laughs> now, the tribe of that contented lady is rather small in America today. I mean, most Americans, and I'm afraid that includes many church members, are not contented people. That's just a fact. One of the reasons that the Peanuts uh, comic strip is so popular uh, is that so many people identify with Charlie Brown. Uh, I mean, Charlie Brown is America's most popular pessimist. Charlie Brown says, when my ship comes in, I'll probably be at the airport. There's so many Charlie Browns in America. The well-known Christian writer Max Lucado says that most Americans are in the prison of want. The prison of want. They want something, something bigger, something nicer, something thinner, something faster. They don't want much. Just one thing, one thing, one new job. One new car, one new house, one new spouse. They don't want much, just one thing. And they think, oh, if I get that one thing, I'm going to be content. And Satan, who is the father of lies and a wonderful salesman, whispers in our ear and says, ah, if you had that, if you had that, brother or sister, life would be good. And friends, that's a bald-faced lie. I learned it early. Uh, I learned it on Christmas Day of all times. Now, when I was a kid, uh, about a month before Christmas, I started making out my list that I wanted. And I sent it to Santa and a copy to responsible people. <laughs> and it, this was in the age before technological toys and phones and all that stuff. Um, so the, the list was typically uh, maybe bicycle, catcher's mitt, erector set. And there were a couple of Christmases when I think everything on my list was under the tree. And yes, I rejoiced on Christmas morning. And then I used all of my new toys. And you know what? As the afternoon wore on, on, their newness wore off. After all, a bicycle is just a bicycle. It's not a magic carpet. And by sundown, I had the post-Christmas blues. Post-Christmas blues. I felt like singing with Peggy Lee. Is this all there is? May I meddle in your life? I know I can. I've got a license to meddle. I've got a mandate to meddle even. Uh, I hope you are contented today. But if you are not content today, what is the one thing that could bring you into the contentment fold? I mean, how do you complete this sentence? I will be content when? When I'm healed, when I'm promoted, I'll be content when I'm married, when I'm financially secure, when I retire. Well, how do you finish that statement? 
I will be content when? Now, if you've got your answer firmly in mind, I want you to answer this question. If your dream never comes true, if your ship never comes in, if your situation never changes, could you, with God's help, be content? And if your answer is no, you're in the prison of want. When Thomas Jefferson wrote that epic document, the Declaration of Independence, he declared that every person is endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is a good thing. Webster defines it as the experience of pleasure or gladness over the possession of something one considers good. The problem with happiness is it can leave as quickly as it arrives. You see, if you lose the thing that makes you happy, the happiness is gone. If good health is what makes you happy, then an illness can steal it from you. If financial security is your key to happiness, the loss of a job can cause it to exit. If harmony in the family is your key to happiness, a family dispute can make it leave and if your happiness is connected to your golf game you're really in trouble <laughs> the Bible says very little about happiness only five times in the whole Bible is the word mentioned but the word joy is mentioned over 200 times happiness and joy very different uh, David Jeremiah has given us this tremendous insight. He wrote, happiness is an emotion that comes and goes, but joy is an attitude that comes and grows. Happiness, happiness is an emotion that comes and goes, but joy is an attitude that comes and grows, piped into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Happiness is superficial, whereas joy is deep. Happiness is based on circumstances, but joy is a condition of the heart. Lots of things can steal your, your happiness. Nothing can steal the joy you have in Christ. Joy is a profound peace with God, with oneself, and with other people. Jesus summarized the Bible's teaching about joy when he said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The great preacher Lloyd Ogilvy did a study of joy in the Bible and he came up with a surprising conclusion. He said that joy in the Bible is almost always experienced in the context of difficulty, adversity, trouble. Sort of surprising. And he quoted as an example Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, who experienced joy even when his crops, his harvest, was lost. He wrote this, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So, if you're in some difficulty now, you know what? Joy could be right around the corner. If you're in the middle of some problem, joy could be as close 
as your simple plea, dear Lord Jesus, fill my heart. The great fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about joy. Uh, St. Paul almost shouts, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And when Paul wrote those words, as I said earlier, he was in a filthy Roman jail with the prospect of being executed uh, in, in the next week or month. Uh, yes, in jail. The hound of anxiety was snapping at his heels. And even when that hound was not in biting distance, oh, its howl must have sounded loudly in his ears. Yet despite all that, he celebrated his joy in Christ. And Paul gave us three keys to contentment. And the first is this. Toss your worries, toss your worries to God and give thanks. Toss your worries to God and give thanks. I like the way the Bible invites us to transfer our burdens and worries to God. Does not say slip them to God or ease them to God or whisper them to God or forward them to God. It invites us to toss them, throw them. Listen to 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Throw all your anxiety upon him, God. For he is concerned about you. Uh, a worry or a burden is like a hot potato. Don't clutch it. It'll burn you. Got to get rid of it. Quickly, toss it to the Lord. St. Paul extend, extends a similar invitation in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, if you have a tendency to worry, TV news and social media will have your blood pressure soaring right now. What if another band of 9-11 terrorists slips across that porous southern border? What if the Middle East war spreads beyond Ukraine and Gaza? What if there's a new variant of COVID that sweeps across the country? What if a recession tanks our 401ks? What if, what if? A church sign was seen somewhere recently that said, the Lord is coming soon, hopefully before the election. <laughs> and I'm praying about that too, and I hope you are too, that the Lord will intervene in these coming months in a powerful way. Now, just saying don't worry is useless. That does no good. It's like telling a mosquito, leave me alone. Uh-uh. No, no, no. no. Worry cannot be banished unless it is replaced. Worry cannot be banished until it is replaced. St. Paul urges us to replace the worry and burdens by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Now, when you can't sleep at night because of some worry, I got a recipe for you. Slip out of bed as quietly as you can so you don't disturb somebody. Go down to the kitchen. If you feel inclined, fix a cup of coffee, but make sure it's decaffeinated. Then take a paper and pencil or pen, sit down at the table, and make a list of 10 things or people that you're thankful for. And I promise you, before you finish the 10th one, 
your worries will seem lighter and you'll be sleepy again. Now, I'm not an MD, but that works. When I was a pastor in church in Memphis, the lady who taught our fifth graders in Sunday school phoned me one day and she said, Brother Bill, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I invited our students to make out a list of the things and people they were thankful for. And then I collected their list and made a composite list in order of frequency with which various students mentioned that item. I got good news and bad news for you, Pastor. The good news is you're on the list. Bad news, you're in 11th place, three places below their dogs. It's all right. I don't mind that a bit. I like dogs too. St. Paul says if you want to be content, first you must replace worry with thanksgiving. And his admonition reminds me of a little song that we learned as children. You remember, count your blessings, name them one by one. Say the rest of it with me. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Here's the second key to contentment. Fill your thoughts with excellence. Fill your thoughts with excellence. One of our greatest freedoms in America is to set our mental agenda every day. Uh, this mind of ours is just a marvelous computer, far more wonderful than any man-made computer. It's not perfect. Uh, it can make big mistakes, but it's extraordinarily powerful. Each day we program that computer, usually early in the day. And the way we program it determines how productive it is through the day. And we can program it any way we choose in America. We can fill it with trash or truth. We can fill it with hate or holiness. With gossip or good news. With nastiness or nobility. It's our choice. It's our choice. Therefore, St. Paul challenged us to set our minds every day on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I have a golfing buddy who gave me good advice years ago. He said, before, before hitting a shot, think pretty thoughts. In other words, visualize the perfect shot going exactly where you intended. And even the professional golfers say that approximately 40% of a good golf shot is positive thinking. Unfortunately, there's that other 60%. In the very first church I served, there was a lovely elderly lady named Martha Kuhn. She was referred to affectionately as Miss Martha. Uh, she was a widow. Her husband had run a country store for years. And therefore, she had no pension and no savings to speak of. Her only income really was Social Security. And I could tell by the way she walked that arthritis worked on her pretty hard, though she never mentioned it. Now, Miss Martha had a lot to complain about if she had been so inclined. She was not so inclined. 
In fact, she was inclined in the opposite direction because there was a special joy in her heart. Her smile was her trademark. She flashed it all the time. And every day, Miss Martha sat down and wrote at least one card or letter to somebody who needed encouragement. Often quoting some Bible verse or something she had read elsewhere. And when I was appointed to another church, she gave me a going away present. A notebook filled with those marvelous quotations that she had heard or read written in her distinctive handwriting. And that notebook was filled with whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable. So, fill your mind each day with excellent godly thoughts. Work through one Christian book after another. David Jeremiah is a good author. So is uh, Max Lucado, many others. Listen to Christian radio in your car. Tapes of Christian music or soul building. Program your mental computer every day with godly stuff. Because in a real sense, we are what we think. And that brings me to Paul's third key to contentment. Stay connected to Christ. Stay linked to Christ. Grow in Christ. Be grafted further and further into Christ. In verse 11, St. Paul said that he had learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What a tremendous claim that is. And then down in verse 13, he tells us his secret for doing that. I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who gives me strength. And that ought to remind us of the metaphor analogy of the vine that Jesus gave us. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, what? You can do nothing. Nothing. And Jesus used another powerful analogy in Matthew chapter 11. He said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus knew all about yokes. He was a carpenter. Uh, no doubt he made many yokes for the farmers in the area of Nazareth. And uh, the yoke, as you know, was a heavy wooden harness that fitted on the shoulder of an ox or oxen. And there was a specially designed dual yoke that was used for training young oxen. It had one side that was heavy, and that was for the older, stronger animal. But then the other side was light, and it was designed for the young, young ox that was to be trained to work in a yoke. I wonder if Jesus had that training yoke in mind when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because, you know, life has a way of, of saddling us with burdens. Now, some of them come as a result of our own mistakes and foolishness. That's true. But a lot of burdens come indiscriminately, like the rain falling on the just and the unjust alike. They just arrive. And I think most of us have at least one to work with. Some, for some, it's a disease like arthritis or something else. Uh, for some, uh, it may be an unreasonable boss 
It could be family finances in which the ends just never seem to meet. Uh, all kind of burdens. Whatever your burden, Christ has designed a dual yoke. And it's tailor-made for you. Indeed, the wor word for easy in the Greek there in the text really means well-fitting. He has a well-fitting yoke, training yoke, for you. And if we allow ourselves to be yoked with Christ, if we stay in step with Him, He will carry the heavier part of the burden and the joy of His presence will make even our share of the burden lighter. So this morning, uh, we have discussed three keys to contentment taught by St. Paul. And I want you to say them out loud with me now. First, toss your worries to God and give thanks. Second, fill your thoughts with excellence. And third, stay connected to Christ. I live right beside Fort Jackson and have cause to go through the fort quite often. And uh, I ride by the uh, headquarters building. And that's where the commanding general has his office. And many of you know that there's a sure way to tell whether the commanding general is in the building or not. If he's there, his distinctive flag is flying out front. And that causes me to think this. If Jesus Christ lives in our hearts, there ought to be some sure signs of his presence. And if our lives display contentment and joy, those are flags flying declaring that the King of Kings is in residence here. Some of you who are older than most of you will remember Ethel Waters. She was the African-American singer and actress. She recorded songs like Stormy Weather and Taking a Chance on Love. Her early life could be described as stormy weather. She was born in a Chester, Pennsylvania ghetto. And her mother was a 13-year-old who conceived Ethel when she was raped at knife point. And just think what the world would have lost if that 13-year-old had aborted that baby. God gave Ethel a great voice, but her, her early years were tough, singing in nightclubs here and there. Uh, but then in 1959, Ethel encountered Jesus Christ and her life turned upside down. And she became a full-time gospel singer and an associate of Billy Graham. And though Ethel made much money in her lifetime, she spent her latter years near poverty. Uh, she said, where I come from, people don't get close enough to money to get a working acquaintance with it. So I don't know how to keep it. And in her last years, she had little money and she wasn't much to look at. But the Lord put joy and contentment in her soul. And even in her last years, she would always welcome visitors, never turning them away. And she would welcome them with that trademark smile of hers. And she wouldn't let them leave without hearing her sing a verse from her theme song. The title of which is on her tombstone. 
I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Now I invite you to sit back and let God's peace and contentment flood your soul as Melody sings, His eye is on the sparrow. Why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant Watches me, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Yes, 
you sing it with me? I sing, or I sing, because I'm happy. 